At RIV, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like Him. This stumbling together is how we live out the truths of the gospel in community each day. As we look to the next generation, we are trusting God to use our Riverview Church family to be a great blessing to our community in Lansing and beyond. We are committed to loving like Jesus as we dream and pray about the future. With our renewed core values, we are looking to take some significant steps over the next two years from increasing our staff with young and diverse leaders, improving our kids and student spaces, planting more churches, and developing a new missional fund for RIV communities to serve our neighborhoods, cities, and towns. These dreams happen as we join together as a church family. So we're asking you three questions. Would you join a RIV community? Where do you plan to be present missionally? And what do you plan on giving financially? Would you pray and consider being a part of this two-year commitment as we entrust our plans to God, pray for lives to be changed, and equip and empower the next generation? Our topic for today is mission. Uh, what it means generally and what it means practically and specifically for us. We're, we're exploring not only where we've been, how God has been faithful in the past, how God is working in the present, but in the confidence of faith, where we might be going in the future. The tagline for the series is this. <clears throat> From many, for many, to one. Our faith has come from many. It is for many to one. Let's break these six words down. First, the first two, from many. By grace alone, we understand that RIV has a legacy of people who have given their time, uh, given their talent, their resources to live on mission. Since 1977, we have people who have run their leg of the race very well. I think about my encounter with Riverview. This was uh, after my senior year of high school, uh, a few months after that cringy picture was taken. Um, I was in a place spiritually where I was doubting. I was considering walking away, not necessarily from the faith, but definitely from my church at the time, and usually that's the first step, and then other steps follow. Um, and so uh, the, the whole venue was built uh, by my then-girlfriend, now-wife's house. Um, she attended uh, and invited me, and I said, no. And then she attended again. She's like, I really liked it. And I'm like, good for you. I'm not coming. And then she asked me again. She was cute and persistent. And after being persistent, I said, it does help. It does help. That's not spiritually um, a good motivation, but extrinsic motivation is a thing. Anyways, I said, okay, finally, I'll go. I'll go one time, then you have to leave me alone. Agreed? She agreed. So I went my one time. And darn it. I'm still here. <laughs> um, but the first time I, I came, I was struck by hearing grace, by hearing the gospel preached with relevance. Uh, and, and what's so interesting is, is that um, God would use a, a body of people where, where a doubting young person with questions could come in and be curious. And I would, I would credit two things for me kind of keeping the faith in God's providence. One would be reading C.S. Lewis, and the, the second would be Riverview Church. And so my faith story, like many of you, even if it's not from Riverview, my faith story comes from many, from many who were faithful long before I was faithful, long before I was in, in attendance. In the late 70s, 
people got together and they just kept going, kept going, so that 24 years later, a building would be built. And, and not just having a building there, but a community inside of that building so that doubting young people could meet grace and truth. So one of the things we want to do is we want to acknowledge God's providence and that Riverview exists because it came from many. But Riverview doesn't exist for the people that it came from. We exist for many. From many, but for many. We want to continue this legacy, passing the baton. See what I'm doing? Illustration. To the next generation, to the next people. We're committing to living in community, to live on mission, to fund this mission. That means that those of us who are here now, we have the honor and the privilege to continue to pass the baton on again. And I want to unpack that this morning, so I'll, I'll just pivot away and just talk very briefly about who it's to. From many, for many, to one. This is for Jesus, for the glory and the fame of Jesus, the only name that is worthy of honor and glory and praise. In Psalm 115, it says, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In the New Testament, uh, Paul famously said, you know, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus. And so what we preach about Christ Jesus is the gospel of Christ Jesus. This is the bedrock. This is the engine that should fuel and power all churches. So we hear the word gospel a lot if you're around the church, um, but I don't want to take for granted this, this church word. Um, <clears throat> gospel, good news, uh, report of good news. Originally, this was not an exclusive Christian term. They operationalized this, this language. You see, in the ancient world, reports would go around. Uh, there would be news reports, so to speak. You, you didn't have the digital stuff, right? Um, and especially when you have a battle, when you have a battle, they would send uh, someone maybe on horseback, but often a runner, a herald, to go from the front lines to go back to the place where people were living. This is where we get the marathon and running from, that odd 26.2 miles. That seems pretty arbitrary. Well, that was the distance between the two sites where the person ran to. Anyways, particularly in the ancient world, when you didn't have rules of engagement and how to fight a war, it was total war. Anything was possible. And so the outcome was so important. Knowing the outcome was so important. If you got a bad report, it means you better run and hide in fear for life itself. That opposing army is likely coming to rape, pillage, murder, and slave. That's happening. But if a herald shows up with good news... If they show up with gospel, you can breathe a sigh of relief. You get to live life in prosperity. Your side has won. So as you can imagine, the people of God, through the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, get this report that God has defeated the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. We don't need to run and hide. We don't need to cower from the wrath of God. The report tells us that those who place their faith and their allegiance in Jesus, these are the people that get eternal peace and prosperity. And so while the gospel isn't the only thing we would associate with Christianity, it's not the only thing. It is the main thing. And for us, the, the main thing is to take this main thing and to make the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. That's what we want to do. So the anchor text uh, for today, 
that I'm going to use, I think is one of the most vital for understanding what does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity all about? It, it strikes at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And while all scripture is useful, it's all good, it's all inspired, we need it all, it, it all helps. If I was pressed to say, like, what are the top three passages of the Bible, the one I'm going to share for us would probably undoubtedly be in the top three. Here's the context. After Jesus died, for about six weeks or so, he showed up to various people. He's making cameos. And some of the very last words that we get from him before he ascended were these. This is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but... Some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's from this passage that we get the phrase, The Great Commission. The Great Commission. It's not a Great Commission. It's not like a warm suggestion. It's not like a spiritual hack. It's the Great Commission. Jesus entrusted his disciples, his apostles, with this mission, and they have to do it together, so it's a co-mission. It's a team effort to spread the gospel. Um, Jesus ran his lap, and he's saying, here's the baton, fellas. Pass this baton. Keep passing this baton. We are not here today if those guys don't pass the baton, right? So to grasp mission, I think we need more than a dictionary definition of what does it mean to have a mission. We need to have a missional understanding of God himself. Uh, God, in his nature, is a sending God. He's a missionary God. He takes initiative to redeem his creation, and we were made in his image. So that means big things, great things are the things that we are wired for. I don't mean that like in terms of vanity. I mean things that have meaning and lasting purpose besides this life, besides comfort and likes on social media and what have you. We need things that are permanent and eternal. Think about it. God sent his only son. His only begotten son was someone who was sent. The forerunner of our faith was on a mission. And so this means that the church, warts and all, the church represents the instrument of God. We are sent people. Um, I read an article this past week that talked about how it's very common for people to say something like, um, the church has a mission, which that's kind of true, right? But that sometimes can land like the church has like one sliver, like one component. It's like if I said, my house has a basement, okay, it's, it, that's partial, A more accurate, more biblical way to think of this would be to say, hey, the mission has a church. Jesus, in John 20, says to the disciples, peace be with you. See that? He's announcing peace. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So think about how Jesus is sent. Man on a mission, okay? Even sweating blood in the garden. The text said that he sent his, set his, his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was a missionary. As he was sent, so his people are sent. Jesus' people are sent people. And the marching orders come in the Great Commission passage. Let's look at three powerful aspects of it. <clears throat> Number uh, one, 
Verse 18 says, all authority. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's talking about summative power. He's talking about ultimate clout. This power comes from heaven, not from earth, from God, not from people. This is an authoritative charge. This is not casual. The weight of heaven itself is behind it. This course that we're supposed to run is not something we concocted. It's something that we've been given from God himself. It's authoritative. That's verse 18. Verse 19, what do we do with this authority from Jesus? Go make disciples. Go make disciples. A disciple uh, means student, uh, a learner, or a follower, but this is more robust than we tend to think in our modern times. In ancient times, disciples would often move in with their rabbi. They would travel with their rabbi. They would take on the chores, the mannerisms, the figures of speech, the, the patterns of speech, that they would eat the same food. It's not like your weekly math tutor, right? Your math tutor can give you content and you can have nothing in common with the person. Usually that's not the person you want to have a lot of co- in common with anyways. Sorry, my math friend uh, out there. Anyways, it's, it's true. Um, <clears throat> disciples did what rabbis do. They would teach what their rabbi taught. They would follow with unflinching loyalty. There's that famous story of Peter getting out in the water trying to walk to Jesus when Jesus was walking on the water. Uh, We might think, man, Peter was just trying to, you know, flex his faith and be so brave. But it's very likely that a lot of his motivation was, that's what Jesus is doing. If he's on the water, I got to get out of the boat. That I have to imitate and pattern my life after the one who is discipling me. And so what do we need to do? We need to make disciples. What do disciples do? Well, they do Jesus stuff. They baptize people. They get baptized. They, they make other disciples. But not only that, verse 20, he said, teach the disciples to observe everything. Another translation will say, obey all the commands. Uh, so there's a few implications here. Number one, uh, you, you got to know about it. You got to learn about the commands. You got to know what is said. That's number one. And number two, then you got to obey it. you got to live it out. That's kind of the, the task. Know it and then live it. Obey all the commands. This means we do not have the luxury of picking and choosing. We're not supposed to be people of half measures. Um, and, and, you know, while the, the gospel is the main thing, it is the foundation, that main thing, that foundation supports everything else. Everything else is included in, on, on top of that. So um, we can't just be like, hey, this is how you go to heaven. We're actually also called to be holy, for he is holy, to forgive one another, because he is forgiving, to be generous, God is generous, to pursue justice, to cry out against injustice, because that is what the inspired words of God say, to be faithful because he is faithful, pure because he is pure, etc., etc. But the clearest thing that we are to do, to be about, is to seek and to save the lost. In Luke 19, Jesus does something scandalous. He had a knack for doing that. He dined with Zacchaeus. The, the, the wee little man was he. He dined with him. He's a notorious sinner. He's not just a guy who likes to climb trees. There was, that's actually a very small uh, element of his experience. That was probably the only thing he was really good at. Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. And for us, this isn't because he was like, oh, they're taking their money. This was bigger than that. This was treason because he was a tax collector for the Romans. And then he would skim off the top. He was using Rome, the the oppressors of Israel. They had occupied Israel. They put Herod as a puppet king. 
The people of God were being abused. He is working for the man, and he's taking extra. People did not like Zacchaeus. They thought he was a lost cause. So they grumbled over the fact that Jesus would meet with this greedy, treasonous sellout. And his response to the how could you, to the scoffing, was his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is lost. You do the math, right? His time and his focus was invested for sinners to see them saved of their sins. So joining Jesus in this mission, that involves seeking and saving the lost, by the way, which his, his work, ultimately his job, but we join him, is one distinct factor that makes the church unique. This is what makes the church a church. A lot of other goods come from other places. You can find organizations that will help with adoption, with, with feeding the poor, the hungry, right, with financial instruction. And by the way, we're not opposed to any of those things at all. These are truly good things. God smiles on those things. The church often needs to include these things as we're going about the main thing. They, they work hand in glove together in cooperation. But if we're being precise, we need to be clear that in and of themselves, none of those things are ultimate for the church. The Great Commission is. Because you can't find any other organization or family that is entrusted with the gospel. That is the church's alone. Hyperbolically, very boldly, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. To make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. When Riv, when we cooked up our six core values that flesh out what our mission is, the first value that we have, our, our first value, is to be gospel-focused and gospel-motivated. We want to be people on mission. We want to be people who pass off the baton. And I want to be very clear what the baton is. The baton is not church vibes, okay? The, the baton is the Great Commission, it's the good news of Jesus making disciples. We have been entrusted with that. It's our duty, it's our honor, it's our privilege to carry that baton. And if it's dropped, the church vanishes. Paul, in the New Testament, <clears throat> towards the very end of his life, talks about this, about running his race, finishing his course. He talks this way to Timothy. You see, Jesus gave the baton to Paul. Paul gave the baton to Timothy. And this is what Paul tells Timothy. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men. So there's, there's the buzzword, entrust. I've been entrusted, now you need to entrust this to those who will be qualified to teach others. Um, he, he could only run his leg of the race. He knew that. He couldn't get the baton to the finish line by his lonesome, so he needed to pass it off to others who would then pass it off again and again. So here's our mission statement at Riverview. Um, our, our, our mission is to invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus. It's, it's deliberate. The reason we say that is because can you think of a, a more fitting response to the grace and love of God? To know it and to enjoy it. You cannot spread something you don't know. And if you know something, you will not, you won't spread something you don't enjoy. 
There's a lot of things that I know and you know, and we don't want to spread them because we don't enjoy them. It all starts with Jesus. It centers on Jesus. In Hebrews, when the author is talking about our need to mature, the certainty of God's promises, and how Jesus is it's our forerunner, uh, that he ran the, the most important leg of the race, how he put us on God's team, made us eternally secure, gave us hope, this is what it says. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, so right into God's presence. In the Old Testament, you can't draw near to God because the presence of, his, of, of our God is so holy, and if you have sin, you're just knocked dead. Jesus Change that. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. He's the first leg because he has become a high priest forever. And so we have this interceding high priest there before us so that we have access to God. Jesus is the forerunner. The gospel is the baton. But like any race and why most of us hate running, (laughs) there's things that slow us down, trip us up. It hurts. It's hard to do. There are setbacks. There are lesser missions that get in the way of the mission. And I think one of the, one of the issues we, we encounter here uh, from the jump is just the question over who's a missionary? Who's a disciple really? I mean, is running with a baton just reserved for like an elite class of people, like particularly the church planters, like the people who church in hard places, or the people who... Uh, Go overseas. Are, are they the only ones? Is it like a track team where you just, here's our fastest four, they're going to go run. They're the only ones that do the running. Or is it everybody on the team? Well, while you're thinking, here's a Spurgeon quote that always makes me gulp. Charles Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Either a missionary or an imposter. Does it just make you feel good, warm inside? I mean, because it, it applies to you, but not to me. What that does is it assails the myth that only a select few are tasked with the baton. So we need to be honest here because it is hard for us to get this right. Um, and really, there was only one perfect missionary. He saved the rest of us imposters. But I think this, this point... That, that we get things wrong is so obvious. Like, I don't even need to argue with you to convince you. We have enough conversations, and most conversations, they, they, they feel different, they might have a different flavor, but the gist is usually like, how I'm a terrible Christian, <laughs> right? Uh, this, this week, during sermon prep, I found myself feeling terrible. You dig into commentaries, and I'm like, ooh, I'm playing imposter bingo, and my whole board is full, Right? <laughs> As good, as right, as true, and inspiring as the Great Commission is, so often it is a source of guilt and shame for many of us. Make disciples of the nations. Jesus, like, I haven't even done my laundry. Like, do that? That's why I'm so grateful at the end of this passage, there's a statement that Jesus included because he is the great high priest forever, where he says, and remember, I'm with you always. Our hope is with him, the one who it's on, and and, and 
He gives grace upon grace. He, he loops in wandering hearts. He corrects us in our smug arrogance. When we get lazy, when we get off course, exercises and missing the point, grace upon grace because he is with us. I think another setback we face is failing to comprehend the nature of the race that we are running. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's the whole of life. A marathon involves stamina, great fitness, endurance. I mean, people who train for a marathon typically are doing a bunch of other stuff because their body is simultaneously breaking down. Like, you have to be able to do a lot of sit-ups so your body doesn't fall apart. There's a lot of pain. There's setbacks. There's dietary changes. And one of the things I I find kind of funny is how a lot of competitive runners, typically, um, they expand their distance, and they're like, hmm, the ultimate notch in my belt would be to run a marathon someday, right? That's just maturing as a runner. Go out in distance. Um, That's not my case, because the way I graduated um, athletically was to fantasy football. Um, (laughs) And on the real, I'm three and five right now, even though I have Chubb as my running bet. Like, it's not going well. Um, but I am happy to own, I will never, I'll never run a marathon. I'm short, make it painful, get it done. But the thing is, the Christian life, it's more like a marathon. It's not supposed to be a season. It's not supposed to be my phase. Oh, that Christian phase. Remember I was on that God kick for a little while? It's not a sprint. It's long. It's arduous. It's a grind. More than anything, it's a grind. It's uphill. It's over potholes. Through the weird parts of the city where nobody's cheering and you have people throwing stuff at you because it's fun to, to troll runners when they're running. Like, I've heard a million times when I'm running, like, run, Forrest, run. Like, we get mocked. I'm like, I've heard that so many times, right? We have to be faithful to the end. And this is how Paul speaks when he was writing Timothy. Tap back on what I had said uh, earlier when I was referencing his, his work with Timothy, giving the baton, all that jazz. Paul is waiting to be executed. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He is running down the finish line. He's coming home. And so the question is, how in the world can we do that? Not every Christian does that. Many of us, we've had people who have mentored us that are not doing that. Or some of us, we've quit doing that for a season and you're just back here maybe because someone who you have extrinsic motivation is like, come on, you gotta come, you gotta come, you gotta come. That's so hard to do. I'll give you a general thought and then get a little more specific. Generally, this means we trust Jesus, that we run with him over a lifetime, that we yield to him. Jesus has a way of rubbing off. One of the things I, I take comfort in, and this is, I think, verse 16 so when it says, they worshipped, but some doubted. They worshipped, that's a holistic statement, but some of them, they doubted. Y'all, we worship, some of y'all doubt. I doubt. These things are supposed to be simultaneous because we have a God that is all about reality. But nonetheless, we, we have a mission that is bigger than even our doubt. And sometimes taking our doubt on mission is one of those things that that resolves the doubt. If you're jammed up right now in a season, just follow him for that next step. Round that next corner and see if he shows himself. Usually what happens is the spirit begins to sanctify us. 
to, to really change and reorder our desires, conform us over time, and to push back on our competing and lesser missions. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are too far easily pleased. We have a God that renews us when we run with them. He gets us on track. He can change us from the inside out such that pleasure isn't our God, uh, such that God can become our pleasure. So let's get practical and explore how might we pass off the baton. Four thoughts for you. First of all, first things first, become a disciple. Um, can't take this for granted. Conversion, that we need to get the baton in the first place. Only disciples can make disciples. Disciples don't just appear magically out of a vacuum. To become a disciple, to be specific here, is, is to believe the gospel, the report of good news. Jesus rose from the dead. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Acknowledge God as your creator, yourself as a sinner, Jesus as your savior. Give him your allegiance. Follow him holistically with your whole life. Don't look at a corner of your heart and say, well, that's off limits, Lord. He's not the Lord if we do that. He's an advisor. But the thing is, <laughs> he's not an advisor. So our time, our money, our heart, our treasures, our ambitions, our skills, our fear, our shame, our hurt, our loathing, we give it all to him. And so I would encourage you to be a disciple. And I don't want to just have some like dramatic moment of run forward and do something emotional, but be serious Count that cost and, and um, find someone, find me, find someone with a lanyard. Or uh, next week when you go to one of our RIV communities meetings, Thursday, 7 to 9, uh, Sunday, noon to 2, find one of the RIV ministers there, one of the leaders. They are disciples who can tell you about being a disciple. Become a disciple. Secondly, if you're going to pass the baton, make disciples. A true disciple makes disciples. That's what Jesus did. Jesus told us, that the harvest is great. The harvest is plentiful. There is so much more room in God's house. It's limitless. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. And I think this is especially pressing when you think along multi-generational lines. I saw a Barna study, five-ish years old, um, which maybe is even a little bit more stark now. They did a big survey. Out of church attenders, people who go to church, 51% of the people, the respondents in the survey, were able to correctly identify and be familiar with what the Great Commission is. That's the church people, okay? Of the survey, only 17% could recognize the passage and identify its meaning. My generation, uh, I'm barely millennial. I'm like an elder millennial. Um, only 10% of my crowd can recognize uh, the Great Commission, and those numbers actually get more stark as you move along of people that are younger and younger. If you're a Christian, I don't only want to ask, who are you following? Who are you running with? Who is following you? Who is following you? Oh, I don't know enough. I'm too busy. 
Do you know Jesus? Do you know what he's done for you? You know enough. And admitting that you don't know enough is a great way to make the faith accessible. Pretend like you know enough. That will drive people away in droves. Who's following you? Consider the people you know, the the people you work with, the places you frequent. Are Are you earning people's trust? Are you genuinely there for them as their friend? No ulterior motives? Are you leveraging those relationships for the gospel, for the Great Commission? Because you love your friend, because you love Jesus, because you enjoy him and he's done good things for you. Make disciples. How do we pass off the baton? Number three, don't be insular. Don't be insular. The church is not supposed to be a holy huddle. When we huddle, we're not holy. Okay? It's easy to stay comfortable. Just to keep the status quo, but being missional means that we need to go out and exchange the world. Jesus said go. He didn't say stay. He said go. Go into the world as he was into the world. We go out. We don't just meagerly reach out. Our, our, our third core value as a church, our, well, our second one has to do with the Bible, the place of the Bible, what is scripture and how it's a bedrock. Anyways, our third core value is that we want to be people who are in and in the community. We are wired for other people and we are wired to be in the community for Jesus. We can't expect people in this cultural moment, especially with so many misrepresentations of Christianity, to be like, come on in. Like, I'm just checking it out. Yes, those people exist. But what they really need to see is a normal person that is a contradiction of the caricature that they see, that they can love and know and trust. You think about how accessible Jesus was? Think about that for a second. He was holier than thou, quite literally. He was. He, was, he actually was better than people. He, he really was. And the prostitutes felt welcome. Children could run up towards him. And those people that were kind of stacking their, their religious house of cards, Jesus just had fun knocking it over. Jesus was so accessible. He was out in the community. Where would he be today? What would he be doing if he was back doing his thing? What pubs would he go to? <laughs> would, would he, I think he'd be at karaoke night. Really? And he, and he, and he, he would, yeah. I, I think I could just see him. Arena rock, you know, you get the tuxedo t-shirt. Says, I'm formal, but I'm here to part. Anyways, he would be accessible. Uh, we, we've slowly started to, to look at uh, some commitments for our Entrust, I guess you could say campaign that we're, we're doing um, not really formally pushing it, but we're asking everybody three questions. One question is a communal one. Will you join a RIV community? Uh, will you give uh, financially? Um, and then uh, the, there's a missional question. Where do you plan on being present missionally, being missional? I, I started looking at some responses um, while I was uh, <clears throat> surfing through ESPN. I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll just check this out yesterday. And I was so encouraged. I looked at some of the responses that have come in, people that say, hey, I'm in, I want to commit. Some people have said this is what they want to do, these, these sorts of things, just a little highlight. Some have said, I want to get involved in organizations like the City Rescue Mission, Rebuild Lansing. Some said, I want to be more hospitable with my home. I want it to be opened up to neighborhood kids so our children can play together. 
I want my home to be open for Bible studies. Uh, a few people have talked about mentoring kids in the community in formal ways so that they can be counted upon. Um, uh, one, one person said that they want to attend like the, the formal neighborhood association events so you actually get to know your neighbors. Go figure. Know the people that you live next to. Weird thought. Like, but why? I have Amazon. I don't need to socialize. <laughs> Some said they wanted to get to know and be involved with the parents in their kids' scouting group. Be involved in the local soccer community, karate community. Um, one person said, I am going to coach kids' sports teams to get to know one another. What are you interested in? What do you have in your life? What, what, what could you do? What could you be? Go. Don't be insular. Number four, and lastly, how do we pass off this baton? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Given the fact that we have trials, struggles, competing and distracting missions, granted that more often than not we are imposters, we got to look at the one who's the real McCoy. We have to look at Jesus. How do we press on? How do you keep going when you're off the track, when you're discouraged, if you're, if you're mocked or you screw up, or your motives are mixed? What do you do? Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, right? Our faith comes from many. See? We're not just making this up. It's, it's there. Okay? It comes from many. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we are in Christ. So this means we are enthroned right next to him. We are in Christ, loved and accepted by God the Father, as Jesus is loved and accepted by God the Father. So what do you do? Fix your eyes on the author, the perfecter, the forerunner of the faith. He is the only one who ran perfectly, and he's at the finish line. He's cheering us on. And when we struggle, we, we keep our eyes on him because he gives us the grace that we need and the power that we lack. Let's pray. Lord, may we know you. May we enjoy you. May we make disciples who make disciples. May we live on mission and pass the baton. Amen.